0: The Humanist Being presents When Humanists Attack! Hi, I'm Chris with The Humanist Being. And I'm Vincent. We started this 501c3 nonprofit to make a statement. We are secular humanists. We believe in living ethical lives and promoting ethical society. Since 2020, we've been producing the podcast and videos called When Humanists Attack. Humanists need to attack because we are in the culture wars and we can't just be on the defensive anymore. And we need to work towards a future that we can all actually live in.
1: So, welcome to the third season of When,
0: when Humanists, Humanists attack. attack. Let's pass it to our co host, Roger Kimmel Smith for this episode's interview. Greece is central to the humanistic tradition one of the world's great civilizations, birthplace of democracy, philosophy. My name is Roger Kimmel Smith, and on this edition of When Humanists Attack, I am very happy to have as our guest a world-renowned scholar of modern Greek music, literature, and culture, Gail Holst-Warhaft. Gail, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much, Roger. Pleasure to be here.
0: Gail is truly a Renaissance woman, a musician, a poet, a journalist, uh, extensively published author and editor and screenwriter, literary scholar, translator, uh, and peace builder and activist on the issue of uh, water scarcity in the Mediterranean Region. She was born in Melbourne, Australia, but her life's work has been devoted to the culture of Greece. Among her book credits are Road to Rembetica, Music of a Greek Subculture, Songs of Love, Sorrow, and Hashish. Published originally in 1975, the the BBC produced a documentary based on the book for which she wrote the script, also is the author of one of the first English language biographies of the towering Greek composer Mikis Theodorakis, uh, in whose orchestra she played on the harpsichord. That book originally published in 1979, and she is feverishly working on an updated edition. Uh, Gail's most recent book on music is called Nisiotika, Music, Dances, and Bittersweet Songs of the Aegean Islands, published last year. She has a Ph.D. from Cornell, where uh, she teaches as an adjunct and was formerly part of the university's Institute for European Studies, and she's also published books on Greek literature as well as translations from both classical and modern Greek sources. My goodness. So, uh, I mean, let's start uh, by, uh, a little bit about you. How, do, how does a nice Australian girl get mixed up with these Greeks?
1: Not just Greeks, but <laughs> those bad underworld Greeks where, who smoked hashish and were regarded as very local. class.
0: Mangas. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, uh, it was a rather surprising venture that I got into, but, um, you know, the, <laughs> the cheapest way to get from Australia to to Europe uh, when I was very young when I was a student and um, was to get onto a, a ship that had come to Australia full of immigrants Greek immigrants and would go mm-hmm. back otherwise empty and they had very cheap fares and you could get into a six or an eight berth cabin and go to, to Europe and is it, course, so
0: Australia is a fairly important part of the Greek diaspora. Absolutely, okay. yes. There
1: are more Greeks they say in Melbourne than there are in Salonika. Huge Greek population. Mm-hmm. But these, um, that was how I got there but when I got there I just completely fell in love with Greeks and then Greek music and uh, uh, first of all I had no idea how to speak a word of the language and uh, I didn't know what these songs were about but I liked the music and I liked the dancing. I think I wanted to share this what I thought was an amazing music that nobody had written about. I just wanted to share it with the English-speaking world, with people who didn't know anything about this music. I see.
0: So then you were, you were playing it, immersing yourself in the in the culture of it, and then thinking about uh, reporting and writing about it. Yes,
1: um, but uh, the sort of seminal event that made me, I think, um, even much closer to Greece was a military coup in uh, when I, not long after I'd been decided mm-hmm. that Greece was the place I wanted to live in. In 1967, there was a military coup. Right. And um, for seven years, there was a dictatorship. And the, uh, one of the first actions of the dictatorship was to ban all the music of Theodoraikis. And I thought, gee, this is a country that loves music. <laughs> I R- went R- back.
0: R- R- where music has a great deal of uh, cultural power. and political importance. Absolutely. Right? What is that Absolutely. about? Absolutely.
1: So that was one of the big motivations. And then I took with me to Australia a Rebetica record and a record of theatre writers, and I played them until I drove all my friends mad. And uh, <laughs> by the time I'd worn them out, I thought it was time to write a book.
0: Mm. Well, So tell us, for those who don't know, a little bit about the, uh, the history and social context in which the Rebetica music Came to be. I mean, uh, I, I know it predates the First World War, but it seems like the pivotal event was the the, the war and then the Greek Turkish War that followed World War I.
1: You're quite correct. Um, there were uh, rabbinical songs written in Istanbul and in Smyrna, uh, not so much in Greece. Uh, before that, there were musicians who, who uh, wrote about the underworld and about uh, the rather violent things that happened in the back streets of uh, what would become Istanbul, which was then Constantinople. But after the influx of refugees, after the disastrous campaign of uh, the Greek army trying to take control of land behind the city of Smyrna, which had a Greek majority, then there was this compulsory exchange of populations um, agreed to in Lausanne and all muslims had to leave um greece and all christians had had to leave turkey so all the greek christians were uh, who were a large number of people nearly a million people left asia minor and came to piraeus with only the clothes they stood up in and that that influx of refugees was really as in so many popular uh, musical forms that influx of of music that wasn't quite didn't quite belong in Greece but was liked by the Greeks, became mixed up with local elements to form this, what became a totally Greek phenomenon of the Rebetica music, but it did have strong elements of sort of late Ottoman popular music in it.
0: Let's talk about two cities here. Smyrna mm-hmm. is, is on Asia Minor, yes. a port city just on the, uh, you know, on the Greek side.
1: On the western coast of Turkey, yes. Right, and uh, now called Izmir. Yes.
0: Uh, and, and Piraeus is a port that's, that's near Athens, but it, it sort of is it, now one city, but it was it, two? That's right.
1: Mm-hmm. There were two distinct cities, but, but now uh, just a sort of sub- suburban sprawl from one to the other
0: and And the city of Smyrna was destroyed during this yes, it was burnt.
1: War. it was burnt, and uh I mean it's now it doesn't look interesting at all, but it was once a very cultured city and a city full of music of all sorts, so it had a big Jewish population, a big Armenian population. so to the Greeks in Piraeus uh, these people who came in as refugees uh, very soon. Uh, earned a reputation as being much more sophisticated musicians than they
0: were. And and it was all sort of motivated, the cultural mixing, basically immersed in the experience of this large group of refugees. Correct. In Greece.
1: Yes. And, of course, <clears throat> there was very little uh, infrastructure or anything for them to move into. And these were city people, and most of them, and they all ended up in the slums of... Uh, of Piraeus and then Athens. And, and they
0: didn't even necessarily speak Greek? They were transferred no. because they were Christian?
1: That's right. Mm-hmm. And some of them spoke Greek with an accent. I mean, most of them had learned some uh, some Greek during the period, but, but they didn't uh, speak fluent Greek. And they were certainly looked down on when they arrived. But very soon they made it clear that they were they were, in, in fact, a more educated, and they came from a more sophisticated society than Greeks was at that time. <laughs> <laughs>
0: from Vakaris, the musician who's sort of considered the patriarch of the Rambetica style.
1: He was the person who, I think, created something that was uniquely Greek. Um, by putting Greek words to these songs and talking about the back streets of Piraeus and the life they led, uh, he turned what had been, I, I think you could have called it, just late Ottoman popular music into something particularly Greek. So Marcos uh,
0: was in a band, yes. right? Uh, Maybe you know,
1: one yes, of he, the he, first great he, bands in this genre. Yes, I call them the Fab Four because they call themselves the Fabulous Quartet. And two of them were, were um, uh, refugees from Smyrna and two of them were locals. Uh-huh. And the four of them got together and um, started singing songs where the words were mostly written by by Marcos, uh, Greek words about their life. The main innovation was the bouzouki. The bouzouki wasn't being played in Asia Minor. The bouzouki was uh, based on an Asia Minor instrument, probably evolved from the saz. But Marcos was born um, on the island of Syros, and he said that he saw bouzoukis on the island from very early. But they were a sort of... um, Suddenly, the bazuki became the instrument, you know, like the flamenco guitar became the instrument or the bandonion in Buenos Aires becomes the instrument associated with the genre.
0: So um, this is music that's coming out of a, a of hashish culture. Absolutely. You know, and so how does uh, I mean, t- talk about the social settings for it, for one thing, and then how does it infuse the music, you know, and the lyrics, I guess.
1: Um, a lot of the early songs are really simply smoking songs. They're songs about, you know, where I get my stuff and and how dangerous it is to and carry it around. For my and, and <laughs> uh, you know, th- th- there were these places, places that were called tekeves. Uh, Teke has associations with uh, Sufism and so on, but in in Greece, it means a place you go to smoke hashish. Uh, in Turkey, it was very common um, to smoke hashish, and the refugees were used to it. In Greece, uh, it was not, and it was strictly forbidden. Right. And so there's a clash there of cultures. But uh, during the 20s and, and 30s, there were dozens of these little little places, very small, simple places, where people went to smoke a hookah together, and that's where the music uh, was played mm-hmm. at first. I, I
0: mean, I guess that explains why uh, it got called an underworld. Yes, but I mean, this whole refugee population seems like it they were uh, yes, took they were, on that that name.
1: You were quite right. right. I mean, it's it's they were sort of forced into the underworld. There was no proper employment for them, and, and a lot of them did uh, commit petty crimes. But it was a sort of uh, regarded by mainstream Greek society as a complete underworld because they smoked hashish, which was, right. you know, very much frowned on. It was a drinking culture. They drank wine. Right,
0: right, right, right. Whereas the yeah. Islamic culture... In, in, fact, you
1: know. in fact, you have a, I think, on your playlist, you have a song called Drunk and Stoned. Oh, I was going to play that <laughs> next, yes. Which leads nicely into this because, uh, you know, it's, it's a song about... Um, by the, one of the two refugees in that uh, quartet, uh, Nestis Telias oh, yeah. was a, uh, the only musician in that group who was musically trained. His father was a well-known musician in Smyrna, mm-hmm. and and uh, and he talks about when when you know when I go into the tekke to have a smoke, when he goes in there he says, I'm completely famished I haven't had a smoke for a long time so he goes in and has that then he says, after that I go into a into a little wine shop and um, when I'm completely high, I then have a few wines to sort of follow it up <laughs> so, so this one is mixing his drugs Heroin came into Piraeus in the 1930s. They said it came from Germany. Um, maybe German dealers brought it in, who knows. But during the early 1930s, a lot of people became hooked on heroin. And um, among them was Ernestis Delias, a wonderful musician and um, songwriter. And he predicts in this, The Pain of the Attic talks about a man who has got hooked on heroin and di- will die in the streets and in fact a few years after he wrote this song he died in the streets of Perez at, mm. in his 30s it was a very tough time and then uh, uh, under the dictatorship there was a military dicta- that preceded the 1967 but in the 30s there was also from 1938 to 1940 a military dictatorship and that General Metaxas um, not only uh, did he ban uh, drugs, but um, including hashish? But uh, he uh, actually, we, we think, disappeared thousands of addicts. Uh, they were rounded up at the railway station, and nobody ever saw them again.
0: Well, I'd like to know more about this Greek underworld. That word is so potent, you know. It make, makes me think of, of you know, Persephone. Please.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Underworld, underground, it, it's the same thing. Um, definitely the idea of being somewhere dark underneath the earth. you know, And uh, I mean, uh, there's always been, I think it goes back to the Turkish occupation, 400 years after all of Turkish occupation,
2: mm-hmm. taught,
1: taught people how to do things secretively and um I mean, you weren't allowed to have—you weren't allowed to teach Greek in schools, for example. Uh, So there were secret schools in the churches, and you know they taught Greek underground, and uh, they learned to do a lot of things, uh, undercover.
0: I see. So, so that so it's a very developed sort of social concept. People people know what it means,
1: and it's admired if you can get away with something. There's a word called poniuria, which really means cunning. And it's not a very nice word, but it's, you know, Greeks are rather Uh proud of the fact that they've beaten somebody down on a deal or they've managed to park their car somewhere illegal and get away with it. Small things like that are admired as a a way of life.
0: I mean, and I guess, uh, you know, in the decades uh, after the catastrophe and then the war and then the civil war, I suppose, Uh, a- any economy that there was was an underground economy with rules like that. That's right. But, but people would have had to live and, and you know, earn income. Yes. This time. Yes,
1: yes. Um, and it was all done without. It's uh, a complete lack of trust in the state. You know, we think about a democracy as a place where you're supposed to trust the state because you were, you vote for these these representatives. But there's total distrust of government in mm-hmm.
2: Greece.
1: Total, mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, yeah. you know, whatever you can no, get It's, away it's with.
0: a privilege to, to the degree you have. You know, you live in a state yes. you can, that has earned some of your trust.
1: Yes, yes.
0: So, um, let's talk about the uh, the instrumentation mm-hmm. for this rebetika. The uh,
1: was the dominant instrument, and sometimes two bazukis, uh, sometimes, or quite often a guitar with them. And the little a miniature bouzouki called the baglama, which has a, a little tinkly sound, a bit like a mandolin, but harsher than a mandolin, more
0: But it's not designed like uh, one? It's actually designed it's like dis- a bouzouki, but dis- smaller? Yes. Okay. And
1: one of the reasons for that was when, when the drug songs were banned and a lot of the uh, players were um, associated with the dope, so they were persecuted by the police. So they they made these little instruments themselves often in the prison uh, or wherever they were and they would put them into the pocket of an overcoat so they couldn't be seen in the street with a (laughs) (laughs) bazooka. So, yes.
0: (laughs) Oh, wow, so uh, I mean that uh, strikes me as another way that you can consider uh, the Mabetica tradition analogous to the blues tradition. Absolutely. here music of you know a poor underclass, often with homemade instruments. Yes, you know. Yes. Uh, Very
1: strong parallels, and I- in period, what is so fascinating is that you get you get uh, all these musical styles that have all ha- have something to do with. Um, with refugees arriving in cities. Um, in Argentina, you have Italian refugees arriving, in, or, or very poor people, immigrants. Right. And, creating uh, tango. Ta- creating tango. You've got flamenco in Spain with Andalusian gypsies and other poor people arriving in cities. Mm-hmm. And you have um, Fado arri- people arriving from the country into Lisbon and Porto, and creating Fado. All of it mm-hmm. is the same period. And all right. of it it's in the, the m-
0: gramophone period.
1: that's right. You know. Oh, the gramophone has a lot to do with it,. Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: <laughs> well, but but uh, this the social derivation uh, also seems very important. Yes. that it was uh, you know these foreign or 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 socially outcast groups.
1: yes, and what and what happens in all cases is that there develops a taste in the in the more educated population for slumming it and listening to this music in situ, going down to Piraeus to hear mm-hmm. these naughty songs mm-hmm. about hashish and so on. Right, or up
0: to Harlem. Yes,
1: yeah. or up to Harlem. And you go you um, you know, you go slumming it, but you don't dream of having it in your... A musician like Theodorakis had never heard these songs until he was put in prison during the... <laughs> During the 30s. Oh, wow, I see. He said, In my house,
0: we'd never have heard such music. A nice, respectable home yeah. was would be playing
1: uh, and classical music right, or some music folk from a music. higher
0: culture tradition. That's, that's interesting.
1: Yeah. We were talking earlier about the prejudice refugees faced coming into Greece with often Turkish as their first language and different customs and so on. Um, this uh, This prejudice reached Sometimes extraordinary lengths, and, and there were songs written about it. And um, uh, I wanted to talk about this song. Son of a good family gets married. It's sometimes called, and it's also called the little refugee girl. Mm-hmm. But it says, you know, uh, that the son of a good family uh, is getting married, and he's choosing a refugee girl. And his mother doesn't look kindly on it. And uh, so the mother goes out and catches a couple of snakes and she fries them alive and uh, so that all the poison goes uh, what, into their bodies, whatever it is. Oh so, so, so she says, now come daughter-in-law and eat this lovely food I've prepared for you. And the daughter-in-law eats it and of course she dies. Um, and uh, so this is one of the more extreme cases you might say, but, still, but it indicates a sort of general feeling about refugees, and uh, it's a grisly little tale. And the wonderful refugee girl herself, uh, who lost her father, Rita Badzi, who sings this song, lost her own father somehow in the fire of Smyrna. She doesn't know what happened to him, but she arrived alone in Athens and began a terrific recording career. But it must have been a very special song to her because here she was, a refugee, um, alone in Athens, and it, it was a threatening atmosphere to refugees in the beginning.
0: You told me, pointed me to another uh, piece of music. I guess about a uh, a, an escapee, a refugee from Smyrna named Marcos Melkon.
1: Yes, absolutely splendid oud player um, from from Smyrna.
0: Wait, what's an oud? Uh
1: Ah, it is a lute. (laughs) I mean, it is uh, the folk lute from which the. Uh, medieval lute probably comes an Arabic, mm-hmm. Arab instrument played right through the Middle East and uh, this man um, introduces a few Turkish words into his song and uh, he says the words say, you know, I'm a dervish in, dervishes the word dervish was used for people who were in the musical crowd that smoked dope and were part of this sort of underworld. Oh, okay. So he says, "I'm a dervish," and um, I mean,
0: that word comes from the Sufi tradition. Yes,
1: absolutely. And so does teke, the place where they smoked. There is a there is a connection there between dervishes and and this whole underworld of music and smoking and
0: but, but, so on. But, uh, removing if from his religious context. That that's is.
1: right, absolutely. So he again sort of says, um, he says, when I play on my oud, I get high on that. I get, you know, I, I feel happy. Um, and But I remember my fatherland and I melt. Because of my sufferings, I smoke and I drink. And that's a common theme in these songs that I was turned on to all this. Dope smoking and drinking, whatever it is, or heroin, whatever it is, because of my sorrows and poverty and yes. being a refugee.
0: Yeah, well, that reminds me of what Louis Armstrong said to uh, President Eisenhower. You know, <laughs> about
2: marijuana.
1: It makes you feel good, man. He said, it makes you forget all the terrible things that happened to you. <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, people have always used something, if it's you know, whether it's a cocktail or a, or a, or a drag on the hashish pipe. It's 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 a way.
2: Out of your immediate Mm. troubles.
0: So, uh, I I mean, help me understand. I mean, you got clearly uh, there is a great fascination with this marvelous uh, music from this, you know, particular. Uh, historical context and this mixture of the the Ottoman and Greek elements but you know I I mean how do you now see it fitting in the larger sort of musical or cultural uh, you know situation of 20th century Greece
1: what was fascinating was that having been sort of despised and looked down on with obvious reason um, you can imagine it wasn't upper class music um, it suddenly became fashionable to go and sort of Listen to it in situ. Then, you know, we get the rise of some big stars who bring that music, including Marcos himself. They bring this music to Athens and play it in clubs which have become called bouzouki clubs rather than uh, rabbetica clubs. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Vasilis Titsanis becomes the sort of leading. Composer of this period, and he keeps talking about popular songs rather than rebetiko because rebetica have a bad reputation. So, mm-hmm. uh, by the time the war comes around and the Germans occupy Greece, you have uh, a popular music culture that is feels very Athenian now, not just Piraeus. This is um, the bouzouki music has become sort of mainstream, and then it's picked up by Theodorikis in particular, also Hazidikis, another Greek composer of the period, who, uh, Theodoraikis, <coughs> having grown up in a middle-class house, never heard this music until he's in exiled on the island of Ikaria. And there he sees guys dancing and playing music together, and he says, what is this stuff? I've never really listened to it. And he becomes enchanted with it and begins writing songs in sort of neo-Ribetica style. And that becomes a whole new musical genre. Then at the same time, when his music is banned in the dictatorship, as I mentioned at the beginning, one of the things that fascinated me about it was how popular his music had to have been, to have been completely banned. And... um, in his absence and the absence of many other musicians who didn't want to play under the military dictatorship, you get a revival amongst young kids of this early Rebetica music because they can't listen to politically obvious protests. But this music is clearly a protest against society. It's anti-social music. And, so and now be- you're
0: talking about the 60s. I'm
1: talking about the 60s, 60s and early 70s. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the, the regime of the colonels. That's
1: right nineteen sixty seven to seventy four seven years of real cultural startification during which Revetica really comes back with a bang amongst young kids and they begin to play at students and so on
0: i see and 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 now uh, and by then it's old music yes. uh and you know whatever the uh, particular political frictions of its time, you know it's mm-hmm. now being used. Uh, thrown into the political frictions of this time. That's
1: exactly, no. exactly, and and it goes on remaining popular. I mean, it's popular now. There's it, it, not a, a Greek population anywhere in America, a Greek mm-hmm. town which doesn't have mm-hmm. a bazooki band. And I mean, I guess it's not that
0: different uh, from you know the. Uh, let's say jazz yes uh or or blues yes. you know both of them music from out groups uh it took a long time you know for a few enlightened pale-skinned americans yes. to start to hear something in the music but then you know by the time that's been that has been being fought out mm-hmm. for 20 or 30 years it's already legacy music yes. and it can be embraced and called the great american songbook or you know, yeah
1: yeah Interesting, isn't it? I mean, th- the mm-hmm. parallels are fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, how it's like language itself. It comes from the bottom up. It's not in, it can't be imposed from the top down. It, it rises up, and then it's embraced by the middle class.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, uh, Gail have to you were one of the first biographers of Migos uh, Theodorakis, and it occurs to me that we don't have uh, you know, any analogous figure in uh, U.S., no. you know, certainly the U.S. music scene. I think we have to call him the most prominent figure in Greek music of the whole 20th century. Certainly. Uh,
1: in, fact, in fact, I think the most prominent Greek of the 20th century.
0: Right, because he was also a politician, essentially. Yes. Right? A uh, political
1: protester and, uh, yeah, and, and a sort of symbol of resistance against the military junta in a, in during yeah. that dictatorship. Huge figure. Um, I mean, the conservative government, who would have despised him as a leftist earlier, uh, he lay. You know, they arranged for three days of national mourning when he died. I mean, it's last in, September. In last September. Mm. So yes. Um, and I
0: guess you already started to explain how uh, 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 how he f- integrated the the Western classical music. Tradition or the high culture tradition, which yes. you say that's where, that's where he was, he was inculcated mm. with uh, with you know with the bouzouki with the that's Greek right. the Greek musical idiom, um. uh, and he and he even in expressed that uh, fusion in uh, the famous two note musical theme that is Zorba the Greek,
1: right? Yes. Go on. Absolutely incredibly popular incredibly popular the the most uh popular apparently film score of all time and um, adapted by various uh, other musicians and used
0: but so, but so i uh, you know I read that the same year that this film came out yes. 1964, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, Theodorakis was elected to the parliament
1: mm-hmm. yes. Not because of that, I don't think, but still. No, but, but it he, but saved him. these two lives. It no. saved him during the military dictatorship from being killed, I think. Um, certainly from being tortured. Um, Zorba was so popular that um, he was a, became an international celebrity with the music of Zorba. And in America, people like Arthur Miller and, um, you know... Pete Seeger, yeah. all... Um,
0: Leonard Bernstein. Maybe people. Bernstein might be the closest we yes. have to a figure like Theodorakis. And
1: they all com- they all uh, protested his arrest and um, jail, jailing. And so uh, he was put under house arrest and eventually and got out to, to Paris. But um, during that time, had he not written Zorba, he was afraid he was going to be killed. He'd been tortured terribly badly, terribly badly during the Greek Civil War. He had been uh, in the resistance to the Germans, and then... Uh, Wait, the
0: Greek Civil War. We're talking about after World War II? After World War II. Okay.
1: Yes, I'm sorry. There's I, so much in this history. So much, back. <laughs> so much unknown history, yes. I mean... Uh, the Greek Civil War was fought between the people who had fought the Germans as, you know, our, our allies in a way, who had fought in the mountains against the Germans and so on. And and the people who had, um, you know, yes. collaborated with the Germans, a uh, yes. lot of the police and the army and so on, right. he was appallingly... Right, because the dictatorial
0: government had come in before 1939.
1: That's right. and But then... Um, during uh, that period of the civil war, when Greece was two camps, you know, it was a sort of. And when the, the Americans were, the American government was supporting the right wing in Greece, uh, up to the hilt. In fact, the first use of napalm, in before Vietnam, was in Greece against the resistance.
0: Oh my goodness! Yeah, right. Um, the, the, the anti-communist sort of yes. early Cold War, theater.
1: violently anti-communist, and Theodoricus was never quite comfortable being a member of any party, and he was for a while a member of the Communist Party, but he was all his life a sort of leftist and a a rebel, and he was a rebel against the Communist Party, and Mm -hmm. they didn't like him and the right didn't like him. Well, and in his
0: work, I mean, you and others have described uh, his music as effecting a cultural revolution. Sure.
1: How how did that take place? Well, that was... um, He had... Finally at the end of the civil war he had a a brief period of of peace where he went to Paris to study under um, Olivier Messiaen, uh, study composition and was writing classical music and film scores. And um, he decided though to come back to Greece and involve himself again in Greek politics when there was a tremendous repression of um, people on the left and um, he came back and he had decided that his music wasn't reaching the people and as a sort of marxist idealist he wanted to, to, to write music that would appeal to the entire population he was also not, absolutely not so highbrow in
0: other words
1: yeah but he was actually a reader of very highbrow poetry and loved greek poetry so he, he he did this thing which was which was absolutely regarded as an anathema he put uh, the greatest poets of modern greece people like yannis ritsos to uh, tunes that sounded like rebetica with, with bouzoukis underneath. Ah,
2: uh-huh. I see. And
1: he picked up a popular singer who sang rebetica, Grigoris Bithikotis, and he put them together with the poems of, of various great Greek poets and created a sort of popular music that is indescribable in other cultures, I think. I mean, imagine hearing, uh, I don't know, um, I'm trying to think of a, a good example of that but trying to hear the rolling stones play a, a, a song by T.S. Eliot you know mm-hmm, with words by mm-hmm. T.S. Eliot that's the level of it it was such a mismatch to many people
0: and i know later in his life he did a whole series of operas to uh, classical yes, yes. greek literature
1: yes, yes yes his life was inspired always by poetry and he sort of he said to me once well, you know my whole mission in life was to clothe Greek poetry. So the poetry came first often as an inspiration and then he wrote melody and he was a wonderful setter of poetry into music.
0: Right. I know you've also translated some of his written work poetry.
1: Yeah. He wrote poetry all his life too but um, uh, I think what he created was this mixture of Rebetka elements of popular Greek music neo-Rebetka songs with um, With poetry, it was a very unique movement. And it was on every jukebox when I got to Greece. Every jukebox was playing. I mean, I I was trying to understand the words, and I couldn't believe these words I was trying to translate. And at the same time, these sort of rough-sounding rhythms and uh, music that I knew belonged to a different world entirely.
0: This is the revelation to me. for what you said, that he hit, he hadn't even heard the buzuki music. No, uh, uh, you know, until his adulthood. I guess you're saying that's right
1: in his twenties when he was a mm. political prisoner, and he heard these guys from Perea singing, you know, a, a popular song, and he said, "Gee, that's nice." You know, play it again, <laughs> and he began to realize there and was. So by the,
0: by the time he filtered it through his yes. own training, yes, uh, you know, with its with its Western. Uh, basis, mm-hmm. uh, what came out was something that, you know, the world now sees as, you know, Greek music. Yes.
1: In two yeah. notes. Yes. In <laughs> <laughs> two
0: notes. So... so uh, well, two
1: notes, of course, come from the bouzouki player who just right, did it. You know? Right. And he said, I like that. Right. Keep that.
0: Zorba, know? teach me to dance.
1: <laughs> Christ. Uh, exactly.
0: And so you got interested in the music of the islands. And, yeah. and tell me about... about how it how that reshaped your world view <laughs> yes it,
1: it did too um you know i had uh, one of my best friends in greece is a uh, a singer called marisa koch who has sung a lot of different uh styles of music and including some rebetika and uh but she comes comes from the island of santorini and uh she's always sung what are called nisiotika Nisiotika simply means island songs, but the Nisiotika, uh, like the, like the Rebetica owe a lot to the recording industry. The recording industry gets into this music in the 1940s, late 40s, 50s after the war, and um, they start collecting music, which is, of course, much older than that, but they begin recording it.
0: And there are there a lot of these traditional songs?
1: Most of them anonymous tra- traditional mm-hmm. songs, and but they... Uh, became specifically associated with, with the Cyclades, with the middle of the Aegean. But I I was introduced to it by my friend Marisa, who used to sing it all around the house and sing it in concerts as well. And I played in her band. We did a tour of the world. And she always finished up with some island songs. And people mm-hmm. loved dancing to it. One day she, she asked me over to her house and she said, I'm, I've got a surprise for you, um inviting Nikos over and I knew that she was talking about this legendary violinist Nikos Ikonomivis and she said to him bring the old man and uh, I (laughs) thought oh good there's an old man singer that I haven't heard so uh, he comes to the door and he's got nothing except his violin I said where's the old man and he said this is the old man (laughs) and he pulls out his violin and the two of them (laughs) began to play these old highland songs and I I realised how splendid this violin playing was and why hadn't anybody written about this phenomenon of, of island music? And uh, so that got me started. Right.
0: I guess a lot of the songs, uh, uh, you know, have maritime themes. They and do indeed. It's, a, it's a, a nautical culture, I suppose. It's a always.
1: lot of it's about the sea, and a lot of it's about the tragedy of women, because women make up a lot of song lyrics in, in the folk tradition always. And... Uh, a lot of it's about the tragedy of women who are left on shore while their husbands go out on dangerous, or their children or their fathers go out on dangerous expeditions and fishing. Penelope Ithaca. Exactly. And also, also sponge diving was a big part of this. Sponge diving was a terribly dangerous occupation. And um, men went out in little boats and some of them never came back. And so a lot and, of the songs
0: Greeks of southern Florida are still doing mm-hmm. this. Yes. So tap on Springs, springs.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Tap on Springs is is a find. It's a wonderful. If you wanna know what Greece was like in the nineteen sixties, go to Tapon Springs. Okay. Writing this book about uh, island songs, one of the biggest lessons to me was that dance is central? That you know, the, the music can come or go, and the singer, singer can come or go, but dance uh, is is the center of everything.
0: Life is um, on. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think that this music helps explain, uh, as I asked you at the top of the program, yeah. <laughs> you know, Gail, uh, you know why you got ensnared uh, with these Greeks. It's, yeah. it, you know, it's so much the center of world culture. You know. Yes. And, and a pivot point between Eastern and Western cultures.
1: So many of European cultures have lost uh, that thing, which is, is the sort of centrality of folk music and dance to their culture. Uh, when I went to Greece, it still had that, and that's what attracted me to Greece, mm-hmm. compared with even you know, Italy or Spain or anywhere. This was so central to everybody's lives, Music and dance mm. was so much a part of everyone 's life,
0: because it 's a signal that you have a living culture that 's right you know.
1: and and uh, what attracted me to the Betica in particular was was the sort of well I suppose it was exotic the whole milieu of it was exotic, and the dances were exotic, the rhythms were exotic um, that 's not true of all Greek music. Um, For instance, you go up to Ipirus, where you have wonderful clarinet music, and that music is in a pentatonic scale, and it sounds very exotic in a quite different way, in a sort of Balkan way. You go to uh, a rebel club, and you hear this music that's obviously got a a Middle Eastern influence. You go to the Aegean Islands, and you hear music that that betrays the fact that these islands were occupied by the Venetians and by the Genoese. Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. there is a strong a western sort of a a sound Mm -hmm. to that. So uh, Greece was sort of at a crossroads. Also, between the Ottoman Empire and and the rest of Europe, Greece was very much a sort of stopping place. There were islands right across. It was like a pathway from the western coast of Turkey to to Athens and then across to Marseille and places like this. A lot of trading went on, ship owning and trading, from the Ottoman Empire, and and the Turks, the Ottomans didn't didn't actually engage in trade. They had Armenians and Greeks and Jews do that for them. So they set up trading posts in Italy, for example, mm-hmm. but there weren't Turks in those trading posts. Um, the other thing is that the that the Greeks and the fanariot culture in in Istanbul, for example. Those people learned languages, and so they were useful as ambassadors to another world, and so on. Um, so the Greeks have sort of occupied that middle space between an Ottoman world, which was very closed, and and Western Europe. Right,
0: and I, I, you can go back, you know, not just a f- hundred years, but <laughs> a couple of thousand yes. years, and make the same point, right? christ yes. Phoenician yes. traders.
1: Yes, um, absolutely, and 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 also the. Uh, influence of Egyptian culture on Greek culture, which the Greeks mm-hmm. readily mm-hmm. accepted, that, that you know was a very strong influence. And also, I think the sea becomes such an important factor in all this. The fact that Greeks it's hard to not see the sea in Greece. You know, it's got a very mountainous <laughs> culture. <laughs> and, and why would you want not to? <laughs> <laughs> you can see the sea from everywhere because it's mountainous and it's, it's surrounded by sea and it's okay. got a very indented coastline. So So the sea is everywhere, and it plays such a role in how Greece has developed and how it's related to the rest of the world.
0: Well, while we're on that subject, I wanted to ask you about uh, your work teaching and studying about water and the issue of water scarcity and conflict and
1: conservation in that part of the world. How did that come about? I went to Greece and went to an island where I used to live, Aegina. And everybody was drinking bottled water. I said, why are you all drinking water out of bottles? And they, they said, oh, we can't drink the water anymore. I said, why not? They said, well, it's salty. And I hadn't I knew nothing about water tables and, and mm. intrusion of salt into the groundwater and so on. And I was amazed. I said, what's it like on other Greek island? None of them you can drink the water. And yeah. then I began looking at the mainland and... Vast stretches of the mainland have undrinkable water because of irrigation and salt intrusion. So mm-hmm. I contacted people in um, agricultural engineering uh, who were water specialists, hydrologists and so on, and learned a lot about it and ended up teaching a course on the campus about water and looking at it from a cultural perspective because water is such a cultural and political Element. I mean, it is one of the most politicized things you can imagine. But it's also in dry cultures. It's it's such a blessing and it's such a revered treasure of your country. So I began looking at all the poetry and songs about water and so on. And meantime, they taught me all about the nitty gritty of water. And we did this course where we taught them about water shortages and all you know, did all the numbers and so on, so that they could understand the problem and what's happening. And so art and um,
0: science and, and social science in one. Yeah,
1: it one actually class. worked very well. And uh, then I, I took a group of students from about five different faculties and I took them to Crete. And then I did another one on Santorini and on Santorini Uh, the year we were looking at their old water storage systems and seeing if they could be repaired rather than having yet another desalinization plant, Um, they they were expecting in that summer, this was just before COVID, they were expecting 6 million tourists, 2 million on the island itself, and 6 million in Greece, 2 million people, and the island has a permanent population of about 4,000. Mm. So what that does to water, because they come in summer when water is mm-hmm. scarce, and it was horrifying. And, and all of the you know, rich tourists that go to Santorin, they wanted jacuzzis, they wanted swimming pools. There were these swimming pools. There's the sea right next to you, and they all wanted swimming pools. They had to have these swimming It was infuriating. I got more and more angry looking at the way tourism is like a sort of colonialism. It's a neo-colonial thing. People with money go to poor countries where the sunshine. They use up all the resources and think nothing of it. But the hotels were so anxious to have tourists that they didn't even have notices up saying we are short of water. So we tried designing notices and going to the mayor and so on. It was a bit of an uphill battle. They didn't want to hear about it. They just wanted more and more tourists, you know. And their solution was desalinization, which, of course... Mostly uses fossil fuels for its power. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: it's uh, a bad story. (laughs) A high
0: tech intervention.
1: Yes. But I suppose it was the only one
0: that was, you know, the only sort of solution that was thinkable, you know, that was ideologically possible.
1: There wasn't any other solution except reducing tourism. And reducing tourism would have reduced the income of the inhabitants, but it wasn't the inhabitants that ran most of these hotels and things. They were nearly all mainlanders and rich businessmen and so on. And Russian oligarchs go there and spend a lot of money too. And they want their jacuzzis and so on. What what used to be in the Mediterranean was that you grew vines and olives and they could deal with uh, years of drought. They were very hardy the uh, things that that didn't use all the groundwater. The other thing is that once, once people didn't go to the well to collect their water, going to the well to collect your water, you understand the value of water. It's heavy. <laughs> and yes. you bring it home and you use it carefully. If you can turn on the tap and water comes out, suddenly all that value of water goes away. And for many women, I mean... People talk about, oh, how wonderful it is that African women don't have to walk a mile to get their water. For those women, the hour they spent at the well was their hour of freedom and socialisation. And they hated it when they got mains water turned on in in villages in Ethiopia and so on because um, uh, they couldn't get away from home. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But uh, the well has always been a meeting place for flirtation and gossip and conversations and so on is where you met people. In uh, the Bronze Age, in on the island of Crete and Santorini, there was this Minoan, very rich culture, 5th to 3rd century BC, uh, there were towns um, of which we have the ruins with um, quite elaborate systems of drainage. And uh, there were a number of wells where people brought the the water from the wells into, into the town. But it was always very carefully, you would see very carefully preserved and there were cisterns to hold water in case there was a drought or something. It was very clear from, from that time on that people were very sparing with water but took care to, to, to always have fresh water. The biggest treasure you could possibly be deprived of is water. And, um, you know, kids learn very quickly that water is something you don't just throw away in, in those village settings, not in Athens, but in the village settings. there is a saying, oh, that young girl, she's as beautiful as cold water. Whereas in England, you'd say he's throwing cold water on something. It's very negative. But <laughs> in Greece, to be likened to a glass of cold water is pretty special. Mm. Um, and, you know, there are so many songs that refer to it. The lovely song that says, you know, the, uh, the bread is on the table, the water is in the jug. Um, give to the passerby to drink. Give him something to drink. It says give to the thief and give to Christ. Give, my dear, to any passerby. So the, the custom is you give hospitality in the form of water to everybody. It doesn't matter if it's a thief or it's Christ himself, you give water. Yeah. So yes, the whole culture revolves around water. That's human society. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, you wrote Road to Rembedica uh, uh, quite a while ago, pretty early in your career. And I wonder how the, the story uh, or the context of it or the historical research about it has changed and what what angles you're looking at nowadays about Rebetica.
1: Well, I've just written a, a book for kids about Rebetica, and it's partly the economic crisis in Greece. And my singer friend, who grew up very, very poor indeed, said, you know, it's time un, under these circumstances that kids learnt about Rebetica, because the words of those songs, are, you know, are, are songs about poverty and hardship and that's what they need to hear these days—not you know pretty little kids' songs. So she said, "Why don't you write a new book about Rebetica for kids?" Which I did. It's just come out. I've just been uh, doing interviews about it. But it's a lot of intervening music was influenced by Rebetica, but and there was a lot of revival of classic old Rebetica from the twenties, thirties, forties. But and then there were there were songs. Uh, written in the 70s, 80s, 90s that were Rebidica-style songs. It was amazing to me. I thought by the 80s, you know, that that Rebidica would just die off because times had changed. Greece was pretty prosperous in the 80s and 90s. I thought that'll be the end of Rebidica. To my surprise, it kept going and kept going. And uh, I would say that there's probably not a town in America which has any Greek population at all, whether there isn't somebody who'll play a bouzouki, somebody who'll play a bit of this sort of music. You know, it sort of establishes itself like a, as a genre that represents, it comes to represent a country to itself. That's something that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. The Vatican now represents Greece to Greeks, whereas when I first went, they said, what are you doing a book about this dirty music for, this Turkish music? Right, it was Turkish, music. right. And I said, because I love it. It's wonderful. They said, oh, you should be writing about which right? I said, I'm going to do that. That's something else on my plate to do. But I said, I love this music. And they said, oh, yes, but it's influenced by Turkish music and it's not, not good music. Uh, now, nobody would say that. Nobody would say that. It's a national treasure.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, they said the same about tango, I think, and they said the same thing about flamenco that it was low-class music. Only gypsies play flamenco, you know, what do you want to be interested in flamenco? <laughs> Middle-class people weren't interested in it.
0: Right, and, right. but um, now it's made it into the, the canon of Greekhood.
1: That's right. So, Rabedica is, you know, you can't get away from it, um, whether you like it or begin, begin to hate it. The Zorba theme is is played in every, every touristy <laughs> hotel and every touristy <laughs> restaurant in Greece. You, you know, you want to uh, you want to stifle it. And the same with Never on Sunday, these sorts of songs, which came out of the Rebedica, it's like going to buy, you go in a tourist shop and you buy a little plastic Parthenon <laughs> and in another tourist shop, you buy a picture <laughs> of Anthony Quinn dancing, post Anthony <laughs> Quinn dancing, dancing on a Cre- Cretan beach. You know, it's an amazing thing of what becomes emblematic of a culture. And mm. all the kids know There's not a kid who wouldn't know, you know, the sound of this music or about the bazooki, and a lot of them want to play bazooki. What uh, what I tried to do in this book was to to place it in a historical context and in a social context, and you know, the fact that Greece is now absorbing or trying to absorb far more refugees than it ever could um, is an exact parallel with what happened in the 1920s with uh, a million a million and a half refugees flooding into a country with four and a half million people. You know, it was a huge, huge influence on the population. It was um, nearly a quarter of the population uh, was refugees uh, from Asia Minor. So these days when you've got hundreds of thousands of refugees who, coming into Greece, which can't, couldn't absorb them then they didn't think and couldn't absorb, absorb them now. But it is interesting how refugees do get absorbed eventually. You know, when they first come in, people say, uh, we haven't got enough to eat ourselves. Why should we share what little we have with other Mm -hmm. people? But um, refugees are highly motivated to work, and they work harder than the locals as a rule. And uh, there was a lot of trouble when I was in Greece in the 1980s and so on with Albanian refugees. And everybody said, oh, the Albanians are all thieves and, um, oh, they'll never assimilate because they come from this backward country. Within a generation, uh, the Albanian kids were doing better in the schools than Greek kids because their parents were motivated to have the kids get on and have an education and so on. So Rebetica has a lot to teach kids, I think, about refugees.
0: Well, and poverty. I mean, we said at the, at the beginning that there's a generation that missed, you know, they don't have mm-hmm. the uh, the sort of basic deep in the bone knowledge of what it means, but I guess th- there are these songs.
1: That's right. It's a way to teach kids that, you know, the people, the homeless they see on the street and so on, are people who, um, you know, often don't have any other choice or don't have a way yeah. out, yeah. perhaps to yeah. you know, either drink or, mm-hmm. you know, Or whatever they do to have a little bit of comfort.
0: Yeah, it promotes awareness, I guess, and also empathy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, Gail host worhat I
0: suppose I should take this moment to thank you tremendously for bringing your great knowledge and all of this music. Uh, and all of this fun. Yes,
1: I've had fun. <laughs> it was not a chore for me.
0: <laughs> and you out there, thank you very much for listening. I want to thank WRFI Community Radio, where portions of this interview originally aired. My name is Roger Kimmel-Smith, and please tune in again to When Humanists Attack, brought to you by The Humanist Being.
2: I'm going fish